We are blessed today to have, during our time of worship, both baptisms and the Lord's Supper. It is definitely a good day to be in the house of the Lord. Any day is a good day to be in the house of the Lord, but it is exceptionally good on a day when we can be so thoroughly reminded of the kindness of our God. At the very least, that is what both of these ordinances do. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper remind us of the kindness of God to bring us into his house, bring us into his family through baptism, and to nourish our unity in that church through the Lord's Supper. We are a church that always tries to explain as best we can the things that we do and why we do them. We don't ever suppose that that takes away from some of the mystery of what happens around the Christian work and practice, but we do seek to make sure that people are well informed as to why we have reasons for what we do. Therefore, whenever we baptize or take the Lord's Supper, we typically have an explanation as to what's going on and what it means. But today, because both of those things are going on, I thought it would be good to look at these in some depth. And every time we have the Lord's Supper, once a month, we have some sort of explanation as to what's going on and who gets to participate in it. And today, because we had baptism, it's good to then take some time to think through what baptism means and why it is that these two young men have participated in it. So each of these reminds us and presses us deeper into the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that as we think through these things, we might think more of him. You might notice that in the bulletin, typically there is a scripture passage placed next to whatever I am preaching on today. And the first thing I typically do is open my mouth and say, turn in your Bibles. And we didn't do that today. We're going to be kind of scattering around the New Testament and even looking at some Old Testament passages about baptism. Uh, we're doing this because we kind of want to get a general sense of what baptism is. Uh, so there's not one particular passage that we're going to be in this morning. If you were so desirous, however, uh, I tried to stay when I'm talking through Gospels as much in the book of Matthew as I possibly could. So if you really wanted to have a place in the Bible to turn open to the book of Matthew, the first passage we're going to look at is at the very end of the book of Matthew. And we'll also be spending time in Matthew 16 and in Matthew 18 amongst other passages in Matthew, uh, that will give you sort of a good grounding as we go forward. Today, as we think through baptism, I, I simply want to ask and then answer some questions about what baptism is, beginning with the first question, and that is, why baptize at all? Why do we baptize at all? If you had no introduction to the Christian faith, you had no idea what this whole thing was about, it would be very odd that we brought two young men up here, got them really wet, and clapped for them as though they, they had done something profound, and then sent them back to dry off. That doesn't seem like it's much of a ritual, and it seems like it should be something that is incredibly important to us, but there are good reasons why we baptize. Baptism, as we are going to see, is an incredibly symbolic-laden thing. But there's an even more important reason why we baptize, and that comes from verses 18 through 20 of Matthew 28. Listen to the words of our Lord. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why do we baptize? We baptize, frankly, because our Lord and Savior told us to. That is the first and primary reason. 
Now, when you read through this verse, one of the things that ought to be startling to us is actually the thing that most people go over very, very quickly. They get to the go, therefore, and disciple, baptizing, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. But Jesus, post-resurrection, shows up to his disciples and says just a profoundly amazing thing. He says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Authority over kingdoms and nations to build them up and to tear them down. Authority over kings and rulers, queens and princes, over every earthly power and principality and person. Even in heaven, he says, I have all authority. That is an incredibly grand announcement, and one would think that the information that comes after that kind of thing would be important, and it is. How is that authority going to be exercised in this world? And he looks at his disciples and he says, you are to go and you are to make disciples of all nations. But you make them in two distinct ways. These things kind of go together. First, you baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is the first step in being a disciple. This is how you become a follower of Jesus Christ. You get baptized in the name of the Lord. And then he says, you teach them to obey. Baptizing them introduces them into the church. It makes them part of the body of Jesus Christ. Teaching them to obey tells them how they ought to walk as members of that church. One makes you a citizen of heaven. The other helps you live as a citizen of heaven. So the first question and answer is very simple in its most basic form. Why do we baptize? We baptize because Jesus has all authority and he has commanded us to do so. That then brings up the question of what is baptism? Well, first, baptism is a public confession. Notice how Jesus says this. We are baptized, he says, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. This immediately sets Christians apart from the surrounding culture, whether it's Judaism or whether it's the Greco-Roman pagan culture. Judaism has what we might, not sort of negatively, but we might label as a flat monotheism. They, they have just one God and one person as one God, but they are not Trinitarians. By baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we immediately set Christians off from Jews, but we also extremely set them off from the pagan culture that surrounds them. You do not belong to any of those gods. You do not get baptized in any of those names. You only get baptized in the one name of Father, Son, and Spirit. Notice we're not baptized into a body of believers alone. We're not just dunked, but we're dunked in the name of Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not simply a rite of religious import. It's not something that that simply shows an important rite or ritual that anyone can go through, but you're baptized in the name by confessing Father, Son, and Spirit. So it is a public confession, but it is also meant to be public. Another way of seeing the public nature of this is to just Think through the original Baptist, John the Baptist, and how he baptized people. Now, our baptism is not John's baptism. It is a different baptism, but it is clearly patterned off of what John did as a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew, we read, in Matthew chapter 3, we read that Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan was going out to John, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This means that the entire region flocked out to him. And he wasn't taking them back to private rooms. He's standing there in the middle of a river dunking them. There was no doubt that it was public. People could see him doing it. 
He wasn't going away to some private place where he could talk to you in order to make sure that you were right with the Lord. No, he, he did it all very publicly. As a matter of fact, the public nature of this and what baptism means is actually shown to us better by something that happens at the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, as Jesus has entered into Jerusalem, the elders and the scribes are trying to catch him. And he's been teaching very grand things and doing very grand things. And they come up to him and they say, listen now, who has given you such authority? By, by whose authority are you doing these things? Jesus sees through them and he says, I tell you what, I will answer your question if you answer one of mine. Here's my question. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd for they all hold that John was a prophet. What's not important for us is how Jesus demonstrates their vast hypocrisy or the brilliant way in which Jesus corners them into having a non-answer for a very simple question. The point is that they knew very well they couldn't lie here. Notice, lying is on the table, but they can't lie about it because it was public. They say, we can't say that we actually did accept him. We can't say that we thought it was from heaven because... He knows that we didn't get baptized. And notice what he says. Why did you not believe him? To believe in the baptism of John is to be baptized. To believe in the message of John is to be baptized. It is a public confession. To believe in Jesus Christ is to be baptized in him. It is a public confession. So baptism as a public confession of the salvation that Jesus Christ has gained. But it is also a public symbol. It is also a public symbol. It is a public symbol, first, of how we follow Christ. Of how we follow Christ. We read in that third chapter again that Jesus himself went into the water and was baptized. Jesus, who had no sin to repent of, went through with it because he says... It is important that we fulfill all righteousness. John initially says, I'm not going to baptize you, man. You don't need to be baptized. I should be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, we've, we have to do this to fulfill all righteousness. By going through baptism ourselves, not only are we following Jesus in the life he lived, but we are following him in the commands that he gave to us. It is a symbol of the first step of discipleship living like Jesus and doing what he obeys us, literally fulfilling the very commandment that he gave and the commission that he gave to his people before he left the earth. Baptize them and teach them to obey. We obey him by getting baptized and we follow him by getting baptized. Second, it is a public symbol of being washed by Christ. It's a public symbol of being washed by Christ. It's clear that the use of water is a picture of cleansing and washing. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, you find that people were needing to wash before God for a whole host of things. Sometimes it was gross things. Sometimes it was really mundane things. But they were always having to wash. God looked at them and said, before you can enter back into the camp, before you can come into my temple, you've got to wash. One of the most impressive and important places where this happens is back in Leviticus 16. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. It is the center of of the Pentateuch, where the atonement of sins is going to happen, 
we read in that small chapter of three separate washings for people. That Aaron, before he could go in before the Lord, had to wash himself completely. That after he took hold of the goat and put the sins of the people of God on it symbolically, he then had to go wash himself. Even the man who was going to lead that goat out and leave it in the wilderness as the scapegoat, as it symbolically took the sins of the people of God away, that man had to then wash before he could even come back in to be the part of the people of God. In the Old Testament, oftentimes these washings didn't mean that you yourself were sinful. There was nothing sinful about leading that goat out into the wilderness. But it did act sort of like sinful dirt. Just living in this world, we get dirty. Just living amongst people who are sinful and people who are going to die and do indeed die. That we get polluted with that death. We get polluted with that sin. And so in order to come before God, we need to be washed. We need to have that sin removed from us, the taint of sin and death removed from us. This is pictured in the Old Testament continuously. It also becomes a feature of the New Testament. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Paul says, I know who you are. I know that this was, these were things at times that typified your life. He says, but you were washed. Jesus has cleansed you from those sins. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's no doubt that baptism is a symbol of being washed clean by Christ. 1 Peter 3.21 is a bit more explicit. Baptism, Peter says, now saves you, not, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Like You know you're a sinner. You say, I, I don't want to be a sinner anymore. I want to have a clean conscience before you. What will take away my guilt? He says, baptism will do that. Baptism will wash you. Now, not baptism itself, because he's very clear. It's not the removal of dirt from the body. It's not just getting clean physically that matters, but it is a symbol that cleanses you spiritually from your sin. One of the wonderful pictures of baptism is the fact that Jesus simply makes us clean. Our dirt, our filth, our sin, he wipes it all away. We carry nothing of that with us anymore because faith in Jesus Christ has made us clean before God. This is quite often typified by talking about washing in the Old Testament, but then also in the New Testament, the kind of clothing that we wear. For instance, in Isaiah, the very beginning of Isaiah, 118, Isaiah says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. In the book of Revelation, John puts it this way, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? 
clothed in white robes, and where have they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know, which is always in Scripture the best evasive answer that you can have. Just affirm that the other person knows and you're, you're clear. Ezekiel did the same thing, so John learned from a good one. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. When we place someone down into the water, it is a picture of them being washed by Christ, that Christ has removed their sin. They are now clean. Further, it is a public symbol of trusting in Christ. As a public symbol of trusting in Christ. The act of baptism is also a symbol of our faith. Water is not simply something that cleanses us, but is a source of judgment as well. The greatest picture of judgment, obviously, coming in the book of Exodus, when God's people were allowed to pass through the Red Sea, but the Egyptian army had that sea fill in on them. Paul looks at that very event and he says, Ah, you see, this was their baptism. They came through the judgment where the Egyptians did not. Something of the same reality is found in the book of Jonah. Jonah is thrown overboard and is sinking to the depths of the sea. Sometimes people read the great fish coming and swallowing him whole as a sign of God's judgment, but that fish was his salvation. That fish was what got him up out of the depths. That fish is what allowed him to be resurrected in fish vomit on the shores a couple days later. The waters of baptism are a symbol of judgment. In the same manner as Jonah, these two young men were placed into a medium in which they cannot live. We didn't hold them down for very long, but if we had, eventually they would have died. They are placed into a, a medium where they cannot live, and coming up out of that water, they have life. This is meant to be a picture of our faith in God. Although we will one day be placed in death, Lest the Lord return first, we will be placed in death. Nevertheless, it is a statement of belief that one day I will come up out of that death. We might say that although we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. God will bring us through the judgment. It is a fact that he will do this and it is a fact that we believe it by going through baptism. We are placed in into death, and we are brought back out again. We're not just doing that symbolically. That is a statement of what we believe the Lord Christ will do himself. All of this points to a public symbol of our union with Christ. In the end, all of it is a public symbol of our union with Christ. As Christ was baptized, so are we. As Christ has died, so do we. As Christ has lived, so do we. As Christ was clean, so are we. Not because of any merit in our own selves, but only because of what Jesus has done. Baptism symbolizes not just that we are following Christ, but what has happened to Christ has already happened to us. We have already died in Christ, and we have already been raised in Christ. And although the consummation of all those things has not fully happened yet, it is so sure that we can talk about it like it's already done. Listen to how Paul puts it later in the book of Romans, which we will come to in the matter of just a couple of weeks. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so baptism is this wonderfully full, symbolic picture of the gospel. That gospel that proclaims that Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures for our sins, was buried, and was resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul says this is of first importance. And we know it's of first importance because it is the first thing that we picture in our Christian lives. That we are dead and buried with him and we are raised again through the power of the one who raised Jesus Christ. It is a symbolic picture of him wiping away our sin, of our guilt and our death being done. It is a symbolic picture of our union with him forever and ever in the true life that he gives to us. It is a rich, symbolic picture. That is what baptism is. But that doesn't clarify the third question. The third question is simply this. Why do we do it the way we do it? Why do we do it this way? After all, we fully immersed those boys. We didn't need to do that. There are many churches that don't. There are many churches that sprinkle. There are many other ways in which you can conceive of doing a baptism. We do it very specifically here in an open worship service, not as a separate event, but we do it as part of a worship service. We've always done it as part of a worship service. Why do we do it that way? Let's talk first about the immersion of the people that are being baptized. To put it simply, dunking somebody or immersing them is simply what the word baptism means. For us, it's a very technical term. It's something that is done in water when somebody comes to, the, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it, it's just a regular old word to most of the people who would have been reading Paul. It simply means to wash. And as soon as we say that, if you think about washing your hands in a restroom, you immediately think of turning on a faucet and having running water come down on your hands as a perfectly normal implication of the word wash. But you remember, Jesus didn't have running water in his day unless he found a fresh spring. What they would do is fill up a bowl with water and they would immerse their hands in the water. They would completely submerge them in the water. That's what baptism means. As a matter of fact, we have the verb baptism or baptize being used in our Bible in ways that aren't translated as baptism. Mark 7.4, talking about how the Pharisees used to wash themselves. Mark says, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Now, what that actually says is they don't eat unless they baptize, which is kind of a weird thing. They're not actually baptizing themselves and then saying, okay, now let's eat, right? They're literally just washing their hands, but they're dipping their hands into the water. That's simply what the word means. However, we need to be clear that the symbolism that baptism is really rich with only really works when somebody is fully immersed. Now, I will grant you that the picture of washing works really well with sprinkling. So if you were going to wash somebody or you're going to sprinkle them with water as a symbol of baptism, it works really well for washing because that, again, is the picture of washing that we have. But sprinkling really has a problem when it comes to picturing death and resurrection. It just can't quite do it. I'm pretty sure that we could hose down Nate and Isaac all day, and while they wouldn't be happy with us, they would still be living at the end of that. If I held them under the water, they would die. There is real death pictured there. There is a going down into the depth and coming back up. Now, it might not be a terribly deep depth, but nevertheless, there is a symbol of it there. 
Death doesn't just wash over you. Death didn't just wash over Jesus. It completely engulfed him, as it will completely engulf us. This is why we immerse. Well, why do we do it in a gathered service? First and easiest, it's meant to be public. We're not doing this as a private thing. I'm not, as an elder, calling people aside and saying, hey, do you want to be baptized? We can do baptism. We'll just do it privately, and, and we'll just tell people that we did it. It's, it's meant to be a public service, and this is our public place. This is how we do things publicly. We come together in a worship service to do them. But we also do it here because the congregation is not to be passive in this. It was one of the reasons why we changed the way in which we did baptisms. It's not just asking questions of the candidate who's going to be baptized, but also having the congregation affirm them. Because I think that a good case, and I'm going to try in just a second, to be made that the church is truly the only authorizing party for baptism. The only way you can ever tell if somebody is truly qualified to be baptized is when the church affirms them. After all, if this is a rite that initiates a person into the faith, there must be someone or someone, someone or something that authorizes that baptism. Even if you want to say, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you believe. If you want to be kind of universalist about it and say, anyone who comes forward can be baptized, well, you are still the one who is saying that that is an all right way of, of going about baptism. You are still authorizing that baptism. Who gets to authorize baptism? It is not elders, it's not pastors, it's not a, a, a sort of different committee that churches set up. It seems to be, in my view, congregations. And here is why. If you have a Bible, turn it to Matthew 16. This is as close to exegesis as we're going to get today. Matthew 16, and then we'll be in Matthew 18 for a moment. Passage in Matthew 16 uh, for those of you who have an ESV, I'm going to be reading out of the Christian Standard Bible. I will tell you why here in just a moment. Um, so if you, if you realize that I'm not reading what exactly you're reading, although I typically do, there is a reason why. It's a very famous passage. Jesus has been looking at his disciples and says to them, Listen, I want to know what people are saying about me. And the disciples very brightly tell him all of the good things that people are saying about him. I'm sure that they are hearing a whole bunch of junk as well, but they're not reporting that to Jesus. Instead, they're only telling him the good things. People say that you're a prophet. People say that you're Elijah. You know, all these good things. And he looks at them and he says, Now, okay, but who do you say that I am? And Simon, who we're going to come to know as Peter, tells Jesus, probably for the rest of the disciples, that you are the Messiah the Son of the living God. And in verse 17, Jesus says this, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. So this is where Peter gets his name. You are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Now the first bit of that is actually what we kind of wrestle with, especially with Catholics, because people will look at Peter and the rock. Now, the name Peter in Greek sounds a lot like the word for rock in Greek. They're not identical in this particular instance, but they sound very clearly 
close to one another. And it's no doubt, if you read it in the Greek, that the two things are playing off of one another. Now, our Catholic friends would come along and they would say, you see what's going on here is the keys have been given to Peter, and Peter was the bishop of Rome, and because Peter was the founder of Rome, then all the popes have the keys of the kingdom. A lot of evangelicals and Protestants have responded to this by thinking that the keys have been given to something else. The keys are actually the gospel in this case, or the keys are the confession that Peter makes. But man, I got to tell you, it's too close. What, what Jesus is doing is linking the rock and Peter too close together. I can't see it. The rock here, on this rock I will build my church, is Peter, I think. But it's not Peter as an individual, it's Peter as a symbol as he stands for all of the disciples. And as the apostle over all of the apostles, he also stands as the apostle over the entirety of the church. And so I think what is actually happening is the keys of the kingdom are being given to the church. And the keys of the kingdom being given to the church do this. They open the doors and they shut them. They bind and they loose. But listen to how the Christian Standard Bible puts this, which is much better translated in this particular instance than the ESV. Whatever you bind on earth will, future tense, have been perfect past, bound in heaven. It's a strange way of putting it. What he means is simply this. You are not setting the course for heaven. In other words, what the church does does not cause the reality to occur in heaven, but rather what the church does is to mirror the reality that heaven has already set. So, just like the model prayer, Jesus says, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, that is precisely what the the church is supposed to do. They are supposed to bind the things that have already been bound in heaven and loose the things that have already been loosed in heaven. The question is, what does that mean? Well, in chapter 18, Jesus gives us the picture of what that means. That picture comes in verses 15 through 20. In verses 15 through 20 of Matthew 18, Matthew is talking through how to deal with somebody who sins against you. He says, hey, your brother sins against you. This is what you do. You go and talk to him alone. We want to keep sin as as tightly packed as we can. We don't need it to be public. You don't need to announce it to the world. You go back to your brother alone, and you try to explain to him what has happened. If he listens to you, he says, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't, because the law demands two or three witnesses, bring back some friends with you. Notice, he doesn't say elders. He doesn't say pastors. If he does not listen, he says in verse 16, take one or two others along with you. They don't have to be somebody who has been ordained. They don't have to be somebody who has any authority in the church. Take one or two others back with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, when Matthew uses that word, he does not mean tell it to an office in the church. He doesn't mean tell it to the elders as though they represent the church. He doesn't say tell it to the presbytery or any other hierarchical structure. He says rather tell it to the church. The church here is literally just the gathered people of God. You go back to the gathered people of God and you tell it to them. He says if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. In other words, if he doesn't listen to the church, He is now an outsider. He's not one who is in. Gentiles and tax collectors, outside. He is like an outsider to you. Let him live that way. And notice what he says next. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. 
and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And so we have a sort of negative test case here. Who is it that has the authority by the keys of the kingdom of God to remove people from the body of Christ? It is not the elders. It is not pastors. It is not any sort of group or committee. It is the church who has the right to remove people. If the keys both bind and loose, if they can remove people from fellowship, then we would understand rightly that they can also put people into fellowship. But who then has the use of those keys for that? It is not, again, the elders. It is the body of the church. It is the church who authorizes baptism. That is why we formally vote on candidates before we baptize them. This is why you answer a question when we baptize them. Because I think truly that this is what is supposed to happen among us. The the church is the only thing that honestly has the right authority to to acknowledge a good and true confession. It's not given to leaders. It's not given to deacons. It is given to us as the church. And I would therefore argue even further, this isn't into the universal church. It's not into this idea of all of the saints forever and ever going back all the way through time, those who have died, those who are present, those who are far off even now. I have no doubt that that is true, but I think it's better understood as being baptized into a local congregation. After all, if that congregation's authorizing them as members of the body of Christ, it would be particularly odd that they not place them in their fellowship. How are they supposed to say, well, you are now part of the body of Christ, but you're not actually part of our body? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Paul never conceives of people being part of the body of Christ in sort of an abstract way, apart from being part of the body of Christ in a real concrete way. He does actually kind of conceive of that, but he only does it in the form of discipline. So in 1 Corinthians 5, he doesn't necessarily believe that the gentleman who has this rampant sin in his life is not a believer, but he does know that he's got to be handed over to Satan, so he tells the church to excommunicate him. To be removed from a particular local body is to have the discipline of the Lord working on you. This is what loosing and binding speaks of. Yes, we indeed loose and bind people to the person of Jesus Christ in the gospel, but we also do it to a local body and congregation. And furthermore, this is then how baptism is connected to the Lord's Supper. As baptism initiates us into the body of Christ, the Lord's Supper is meant to keep us there. One initiates us, the other sustains us. Both have the emphasis of our union with Christ, although completely and utterly different symbols. And though we are not foremost unified to one another, but to Christ, because each of us is unified to Christ, we are then unified to one another. And this is why, as a church, when we ask people to take the supper, we ask that only those who are rightly authorized to do so through believer's baptism take of the supper. This is also why we ask those who are out of union with other believers, whether through sin or negligence, keep themselves from taking the supper. We ask this for the good of you, yourself, because Paul lists a number of difficult things that can happen, including death, that come through not being unified with other believers and taking of the Lord's Supper. Beyond that, he says simply, you're just not eating the supper. 
But we ask this also for our own conscience. After all, our understanding of baptism means that we can do no less than this. If through baptism your faith is confirmed, if through baptism your union is seen, if through baptism your confession is heard, and through baptism that your belonging is made clear, then the Lord's Supper, while it does many things, is certainly meant to sustain those things. And if we believe that that must be done in a certain way to be authorized by the New Testament, then we can't very well undo that by allowing access to the Lord's Supper in that way. Now, although that seems pretty strict, I do want to say this, and I want to be incredibly clear about this. This in no way, shape, or form means that for those who don't have this affirmation in their lives, that we don't believe that you are Christian. I know a lot of Methodists and Anglicans and Presbyterians that I would consider faithful Christians, that I have gained much from, I have learned much from, and I am thankful to God for them. They very well be, may be, fully Christians. But my opinion isn't actually the issue. My understanding of your place in Christ is not actually the issue. Because I am not so arrogant as to think that my opinion in this matter holds over the words that Jesus Christ has left us himself. If he has said that you are authorized only by the body coming together and affirming you in baptism, then who am I to overrule that and say, no, it's okay, we're close. We end up holding out the ordinance of the church so that we can see the grace of God in action. We preach the word, but the Lord's Supper and baptism are these wonderful pictorial demonstrations of that very gospel. We do this not because we want to exclude people, but we do this because we want everyone one day to come and join us in that union. If you want to know what it means to have a church authorize your faith, if you want to know what it means to have a church affirm your faith and say, that is a good confession of the Lord Jesus Christ, come and talk to me. I would love to talk to you about that. I would love to have you be part of a union of, of people who want to affirm you and help you, guide you and direct you, to hold you accountable and to encourage you as you walk forward with the Lord. This is the whole point of having these demonstrations is to show what the gospel is. For those of us who know it, this is nothing less than an awesome celebration of what he has done for us. For those of you who do not know him, I pray that you would be humbled and faithful to him that you would seek him out while he can be found and trust in the Lord Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and was raised for your justification. Just as these two boys have confessed and believed, it is just that simple. For those of us who know Jesus Christ, we will tell you there is salvation in no one else and there is no other name on heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus is all we need because thankfully, He's all we get. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, our rock, and our redeemer, it is a joy to come into your house this morning to see your gospel and to preach your word. We pray especially for these two young men. Sustain and keep them in the faith. Grow and mature them into Christ-likeness that their lives might glorify you. 
We pray that your spirit might work in the lives of people who have gathered here. That they would be encouraged through these visible signs of your gospel. That they would be sustained through heartache and difficulty by the grace that they find here by faith. We pray that they would glorify you for the work that you have done for them. May you be praised and glorified by our lives always, now, and forevermore. We ask these things for our good and for your glory. Amen.